I'm Adam Spencer, and in this episode of Challenger Chats, I'm joined by Robin Rowland OBE, operating partner at hospitality investment firm Trispan. In this conversation, Robin walks us through his remarkable career and shares insights from his experiences, which range from building Challenger hospitality brands from the ground up to sitting on the boards of large listed businesses with upwards of 1,500 venues. We also discuss the shift in mindset he had to make when becoming a full-time investor, how the theme of responsible consumerism is increasingly on his radar, and the beehive in his back garden. So dial up the volume, kick back and enjoy. So it's without further ado that I'd like to introduce our guest for today, none other than hospitality sector legend and industry maestro Robin Rowland OBE. Now this podcast is slightly different from our other podcasts. Usually we interview the founders and operators behind our favorite challenge brands. And whilst Robin is no longer an operator, he is one of the key people behind TriSpan in the UK, which is itself a challenge brand in the world of hospitality investing. Robin's also the chairman of TriSpan portfolio companies Rosa's Thai and Thunderbird Chicken in the UK and sits on the board of Rosa Mexicano in the USA. No connection to Rosa's Thai there. So in short, we think he's more than qualified for challenger chats. Uh, in a past life, Robin sat on the other side of the table as an operator, working with the likes of Diageo, Scottish and Newcastle and the restaurant group before finding the role for which he is probably best recognised becoming CEO of the iconic fast casual dining chain Yosushi in 1999. Robin, I could read out the remainder of your CV, but it will probably take up the rest of this podcast and I'll be out of breath. So I'd rather we hear from you at some point. So welcome. Thank you. Hi, Adam. Robin, before we dive into uh, some of the detail, can you tell us a bit about your background pre-Yosushi and how you found yourself getting into the hospitality game? I guess like many other people, I I kind of fell into it, not by um, design, but by Uh, some quirky accident, but I was studying American studies, history, politics and literature, Um, had a year in the States, uh, came back on the milk grounds and I had three jobs, a job with M&S, a job with Unilever um, and a job offer from this business called Whitbread, who said, you know, really, they were looking for people who had uh, leadership skills um, and a kind of um, the ability to roll the sleeves up and get stuck in. And because it's such a uh, you know, an interesting part of everyone's students' life in terms of pubs. Um, I thought, well, let's let's give it a crack. So I spent four years, wonderful years, working with Whitbread, everything from being out in the trays to designing menus, doing sort of restaurant developments, putting the first cafe bars into some of the restaurants, putting pizzas into restaurants, and bringing Brewers Fair down for the North of England. Um, and I was, I think, regarded with some kind of trepidation by my colleagues because I was young and didn't really see any barriers. That's why I fell into hospitality. And, and from there on, it was just um, a series of bosses taking me with them, wonderful mentors. And I did one thing which is relevant to this whole conversation. I, I got involved with Old Leon's, which was um, uh, a nascent brand like TJ Fridays. Um, and we built that to 25 restaurants in the space of five years from the age, my age, I was only 28. And I became the operations director, effectively a mini CEO of this business at a very tender age. Um, but I was taught everything I know about restaurants by those managers, the extraordinary bunch of general managers in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and they set me on my path to running larger businesses and around 150 pubs and restaurants with Scotts and Newcastle. And then I, I think a lot of, like a lot of people, I had the itch to run my own business um, and really felt that corporate life, you know, whilst it has its, um, you know, fantastic uh, advantages also sometimes doesn't always make the right decisions for the businesses um, short term um, and I just wanted to be a bit, a bit more sort of um, uh, control of my own destiny so I, I went to the last thing I did before the Osushi um, was I, I was asked by Andrew Guy to join the restaurant group and I met um, you know my great friend and colleagues um, Steve Wilkins and James um, Haller there and we, we were the three kind of young punks on that board, um, all retail directors um, who were very qualified to run any of the brands they could throw at us. Um, and I spent you know, two, two very enjoyable years working with them and sort of detoxing from very large corporate uh, businesses to a much smaller one. Um, and then I uh, you know, fought, uh, pushed myself out to uh, take a big risk. And that's where my entrepreneurial, um, you know, kind of uh, 
zeal comes from. And I, I, I was just the right side of, I think it was 38. And it was just important to me to get out and try my luck. So I joined the founder of Yosushi, Sai Woodruff. Uh, we had two restaurants at the time um, and started that 20 year journey with that, that wonderful business. Uh, but it was, it was just a, a kind of a, I'm a corporate entrepreneur. I just, I didn't really, uh, I know how I've got, I've got the disciplines and the knowledge to how to work in a corporate environment. But frankly, I'm just more passionate about brilliant businesses um, and, you know, in inspiring businesses. So the, the trappings of large, large businesses, although ironically I'm now on the board, um, it's gone full circle. It was more important to me to actually uh, be in control of my own destiny and, um, and have the pleasure of choosing the people I uh, worked with um, to, sort of, to surround me in terms of growing a business. And that's what I, I, I was able to do at Yosushi. I love that phrase you used, um, corporate entrepreneur. It's very rare to see people kind of make that transition from very large corporate to very small owner-managed business seamlessly. Obviously, you're kind of you're moving from an environment where you have the systems controls, you have people to bounce ideas around, to all of a sudden you effectively you're having control of the bridge. So, how, how did you how do you find that kind of you know, transition? Um, it sounds like you kind of phased it from super large corporate to to mid-sized corporate to small corporate. But how was that transition managed in, in your eyes? Um, well, I'm kind of rationalising in reverse because it's it's happened, so it's easy to to try and say it's all nicely so segued. It wasn't. I mean the the reality of running in you know, 150 outlets down to two, you know, it is a seismic change in terms of understanding that everything falls upon you. Um, but equally, I kind of knew what was needed to grow the business. So I, I, I knew we could build the, um, the GNA around the business only when we could afford it. So that was a, you know, a kind of a salutary lesson. Um, the quality of general managers uh, early doors in terms of a small business is super important because you are relying on them to uh, almost deliver the brand um, uh, symbiotically with you. So you just have to have you know, high caliber um, GMs around you. And then the financial controls, which you, you don't always get that when you're in large PLCs because you don't worry about the balance sheet. You don't, you're not really aware of the debt. Um, you, you suddenly become this you know, startling reality that cash flow is everything. So you know, the transition for me was understanding how important the money was. And I, was blessed to affirm when when I joined Simon, I, I just said, "Look, you know, I, I really want to run the business, not be your sidekick." So we became partners, and I managed to him convince him that we should change the FD, and that was within six months of joining. And a lady called Zoe Tyndall joined me at the start of that journey, and she was young, but she was very bright, and she kept kept hold of the money. So I think you know, without her and great general managers, we wouldn't have grown the business. Um, but the rest of it was really about just having an absolute conviction that you were doing something that was utterly unique and it wasn't going to get trapped by the dogmas of other businesses and we were going to do things differently and better you know it is a unique business for for many reasons but um it was just the basics around finance and people and what was it about the yo brand business concept that that made that become the one that caused you to leap out 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 of the corporate world right well it, it, it was it was um a risk i mean for sure because you know, who Japanese food is expensive because it could be, not because it had to be. Um, and in, in broadly, you were spending a hundred, you know, hundred hundred pound a head, crazy amounts of money for decent Japanese food. But to get affordable, um, accessible um, food that you could try in the Japanese restaurant, it, it's very tricky to find those places. So putting on a conveyor belt, making it, putting a lot of sort of rock and roll around it, which is you've got to imagine it's late nineties. This was a different time. To today, and it was full of optimism and, and crazy sort of um, technology advances. The start of the dot com boom. It just was a very cool, um, iconic brand to be involved with. The skill or the the real success was basically taking it out of very privileged locations like Harvard Nichols and Selfridges, unrepeatable, frankly, and then make it work in you know un, you know in in locations you know in Manchester and Glasgow and Edinburgh. That was the real sort of. Um, uh, leap of faith, but I, I believed that you know we were ahead of the, ahead of our time, and people would would chime with it, and it just grew because of a kind of cult following, which was based upon you know, really good food at really good prices, um, and you know in a in a uniquely different environment, and it had this kind of cachet niche appeal, which you know we held our ground dramatically until you know the um, the kind of uh, the two big um, competitors came along with it, soon Wasabi in the um, you know, probably five, six years later. And the only real comparable business at the time that was doing interesting food 
at scale, and I'm, I'm not dissing anybody else, but you know, other people do brilliant large businesses. But Wagamama's was also at the time, uh, you know, creating quite a wave. So the two of us were kind of um, at, an, at a really exciting point of our life. Um, but you know, it, it, it is a leap of faith, and it's imagining the food of the future, and that's kind of what I do today a little bit as well. And I guess not not unlike Wagamama's, you you ended up uh, fueling that growth through utilising private equity money. So I think you undertook three management buyouts and, and a couple of refinancings kind of a lot along that journey, each time kind of changing your, your private equity backer. So how did you find those deals at the time? Were, were they processes that you enjoyed that resonated with you or were they just a, a kind of means to an end at the time? I mean, the transactions are never enjoyable because they're unbelievably <laughs> hard work, yeah. and it's what you do for a living, um, and they are very—they're nerve-wracking. Um, you know, and anybody who's going through it needs to be well advised. And I'm, I won't blow your own trumpet, but you are a, a terrific house for an entrepreneur to be um, thinking of. Um, no, I mean, basically, it was means to an end to basically get um, to buy the company from the founder. Um, the first deal was with Primary Capital. Um, we had five suitors. There was a ten million valuation on the business. Um, and broadly we're making just about a million at the time so there's a bit of development capital coming in but primary capital kind of understood small um, businesses and the kind of the, the growing pains um, and they were you know, were sector agnostic which was helpful because I didn't really want them to tell me what to do but I did want a, a sounding board and I got it from them and they were good with um, the financing and the bank um, and, and gave us some you know, structure around boards uh, and some strategic um, thinking so they, they were they were perfect for the size and they were they were de- decent people throughout i think it's like a marriage it, it, you know, everybody gets terribly excited at the beginning and it's all everyone's loving each other up and uh you know then you get engaged and then you think oh i'm gonna get married um and, and then you have babies and, and then you realize that actually this this is quite a quite a long haul um and i you know they, they were they were good they were a good first marriage for us to have um but you only really learn about your investor uh, when you sell um, in, my, in my opinion, and I've seen it from multiple occasions with other people as well, good friends of mine. Um, but they were decent; they sold well. And then we we were invested in by um, Kilvest, who were, um, were not known in the UK at the time. I think they just done Hillary's Blinds, um, you know, which doesn't really tell you an awful lot. And a infrastructure um, business um, works on network rails. Um, that was in, in two thousand and eight, and we were just the timing was the most important thing for us there. Uh, I just in my waters, I absolutely knew the world was going to change, and it was it was obvious to me because I've been in America um, in late two o seven, and I came back and I said to the chairman of Primary, I cannot tell you, you know, how important it is we we sell now because we're never going to get a better time, and this Fannie Mae you know disaster and these toxic debts in America. I'm no great economist, but I can tell you there is something that's not right in the waters here, and and I'm hearing from my American colleagues. And I think we need to do a deal. So we did a deal. Um, and that was that's for a good timing. Kilvest then basically locked in for a, a long time period, I mean, seven years. Um, uh, we um, finally sold in two, in 2015 um, after a qu- quite a long, a long process. And it was, just, is there any advice I give you? Is you once you've decided when you want to get on with the process, just execute on it. You can't stop start. And our reason we, we've stopped started because we were um, trying to fathom out our American components of our, our um, business. Business is solid as a, a nut, brilliant business. But um, the American um, potential became a, a drag on the timing. Um, and because of that, I think we lost a bit of momentum. Anyway, we, we finally sold to uh, Mayfair Capital. And I was the chairman at that stage and, um, and chose to go back in to help Mayfair for a couple of years. And that's exactly what I did. And I stayed on the board for another 18 months after that. Um, but it was the last transaction on, on that journey. Uh, but they're all completely different and they were completely different investors. Um, and it was all about timing. I think in every single one of those cases that probably uh, our, our timing and their timing of investment that um, allowed the deals to take place. But lots of learnings along the way and lots of unsolicited responses uh, interest um from 2013 to 2017 we must have been approached i mean dozens and dozens of times um and going through transactions we must have i must have had to present to you know upwards to 20 uh, parties i mean it's, it's it's grueling um and i you know i, I so i do have feel for anybody going through these transactions and i i, I have learned 
having been on the, that side, I'm extremely respectful to anybody looking to refinance um, or bring a new investor on board. And hopefully that's helpful to them because I do, do understand what they're going through. And they have to run a business at the same time. That kind of takes me to my next question, which was around the kind of learnings and how, how you're kind of applying those now in your role as an investor. You've obviously seen hopefully mainly good, um, probably some bad and maybe some ugly as well in, in terms of your PE journey. But what are the kind of big takeaways that you took out that you make sure that you apply to your own behavior now as an investor going forward with your portfolio businesses and businesses that you're trying to court as an investor? We are, we are deeply thoughtful about the businesses which we wish to invest in. And I mean that we, we think very hard about, is this a consumer offer that's going to be um, sustainable and sellable at the end of our time um, frame? Uh, have we, are the, the, the current leadership um, truly going to be, um, can, we, can, we, can, can we add value to, to their journey? And can we feel that we're going to have a, a strong, positive value creation uh, journey because there, there's chemistry that has to be right because you're otherwise you're batting at the wrong wrong um, alley. It, it can be a problematic if you can't get that right. Um, and then you know do what, what what is it that we you know can can do together to to really tr- transform the business rather than just uh, continue what they've done today. So we, we're thoughtful and in, in that and because of that we probably are we probably take a lot of time to get to know businesses. I mean, virtually everything we, we do in the UK is proprietary because I like to think I know most of the operators. I'm happy to work with intermediaries who want to help us get the deal done. But I really need to believe and, um, and feel we, we are compatible uh, and we are empathetic about the, the journey because it's the speed of the journey and the pace and the cadence um, that we have to both agree on. Because once we sign up the business plan, it's like over to you, you know, really you do, the CEO has to deliver, but I, I want to know that they can do it and they want to do it and we can help them and there'll be, you know, a kind of mutuality of needs. And then it's not like a, a kind of un, unfair relationship. Um, and, and, and American colleagues, you know, have the same view. We, we, we backed two amazing businesses um, in the last few months. One's called uh, Maman, which is a, uh, a French um, all-day bistro bakery um, LPQ for the 21st century, much lighter weight and more feminine, brilliantly run, but it needs lots of help in terms of the pipeline. Um, Naya is kind of Leon meets amazing Lebanese food. Um, and, you know, it is a food of the future in terms of uh, unbelievably nutritious and healthy. And, and that, that business is run by a dynamic entrepreneur. And we're just trying to think, how can we put the right team around and help these guys to achieve what they want to achieve? But there is a difference between a founder business who wants to stay on and a founder who wants to segue or, or exit um, and, and working with a, an MBO team. There are, there are differences there, um, but we can look at both. But I think the, the overall, we, 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 just, we, are, we are very mindful about this has to work for both of us uh, rather than like, can we get the best, can we just get the best deal done? Because that, that's, that's just the start of the relationship. I know you touched on um, in your time at Yo that, just when you make a decision to go down a process and that you know getting investment is is the right kind of thing to do that you know actually it's time just to get on with it but actually you know from an investor's mindset and you know this isn't just tri-span this is all investors they want to spend a lot of time getting to know businesses they want to get in the skin really kind of you know understand the motivations behind uh, behind the founders so so how do you kind of tally that or bridge that um, when, when do you as an investor get to a point where you just you know need to take that leap <laughs> so to speak uh, where where enough data is enough now's now's the time to go where does that point lie for you okay I mean, for those who've been through these, these processes it, this is all second nature but those who haven't i guess what happens is you you have a, a courtship where you've been introduced but potentially by a third party and then you have to um you know agree ahead heads of terms so you're at least in the ballpark on commercials um and then you should then you, you grant hopefully you can get granted exclusivity and that'll be for you know up to two months maybe um, and then in our case what's happening in parallel with that is we're going back to our investment committee and presenting a series of papers based upon um, more and more information to a point where our our, our investment committee of six can then opine on a, a decent set of data and say right we're now prepared to invest money our shareholders money um, remember we have shareholders in in um, due diligence and that's when the clock starts running that's when the advisors get excited because they know there's, they can see you know, there's, a, there's a deal maybe on the horizon. Um, equally, it's it's real. When that starts happening, you are basically putting a deposit down in a house virtually. 
um, because you're going to burn up several hundred thousand pounds worth of, of money if you're not careful um, with you know, financial and legal um, and commercial DD. So I suppose when we get serious is when we've gone exclusive. Um, and what we don't do is we don't do many deals. So when we get exclusive, it means we're, we're ready to we're ready to do a deal. Um, so we're not spinning loads of plates. We, um, and then we and then we are we're blessed because we've got a good team who've worked together now for enough years. I mean, you know, ending up to five years. So I've got a terrific um, a team who work with me in terms of structuring deals, um, the financing of deals, the the, uh, the due diligence, and we all work, you know, um, to a, a very rigid time frame. So we can give people the assurance that we are going to complete on this, unless, of course, something dramatically changes, or um, in terms of performance, or unless there's something which comes up in due diligence, which is a, you know, a unforeseen, um, which does need to be explored and understood. Um, but hopefully, you know, because we've done quite a lot of research before we go exclusive uh, or agree heads of terms, it, it's unlikely that we're going to find some massive potholes the way through. Uh, and then we try and we 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 just try to be respectful um, to the business, and, and you know we can have to we need quite a lot of time from the CEO and the FD, but you know we will probably speak to the the marketing director and the HRD, and the operations director as well. But we we are respectful that people still have a business to run, and I you know I know how distracting this can be, but what we don't like to do is um, you know compete in, in crazy auctions um, because really you know that's 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 a way to get a deal done, but you know. Let's, it's not like buyer beware; it's seller beware, because you get what you get what you deserve if you do that. You need to get to know who your your, your new partner is going to be. Robin, you're speaking like a true investor now. I must say, um, sorry. And, and <laughs> so, I guess rewinding back a bit, we we've talked a bit about TriSpan. How did how did you get involved with TriSpan? And and when in your mind did you feel like it was the right time to make the again make a transition from being an operator to investor? What kind of persuaded you to go down that route? I mean, I suppose first thing is I, I am still an operator. I, I've got to put that on the table. I mean, I, I really am. I mean, ask the the CEOs. They they just uh, will, will say, "Oh God, he's still you know got a view on this, and he's um, hopefully not meddling too much." But but I, I I can't I can't sit back and 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 not give them at least some some uh, some experience from the past um, and, and remain relevant because I do spend a lot of time around looking at operations. So I I guess um, the but to your to your point, I, I'm I, I I'm the reason I'm. I, become an operate full-time operating partner which is quite unusual um in, in a specific uh, category is the the people investing in yosushi in 2008 the the two founding partners um fadi Ablush and ilan schultz basically reached out to me when they left kilvest they left kilvest in, in 2014 and they said when you're done with yo um we would like you to join our platform because we know who you are um we we like the way you you, you analyze the business, not just as um, you know, a, a CEO, but you see it from in a more um, holistic fashion. Um, and you know, they start, asked me to join a board in the Middle East, which they set up a business called Etos, which we now have 50 restaurants in the Middle East, um, to work with them on that. And then they said, right, and it's almost because of that and because of Yo, when you do finish your Yo, and there is a time frame, you have to, you can't stay there forever, Robin. Um, we would like to join us full time. And I was very, you know, I've, you know, I, I was slightly unnerved by that thinking well, oh gosh well i really enjoy working my team and i'm actually an operator and that's all i can do um and you know that was they i think their 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 thought process was sound because and for me you know i, I took the leap of faith and i gave them you know uh you know six months a year what it was to, to see if they could they could um you know it was going to work out but really they needed me to to raise money to deal source and then really add value and I, it's worked out you know what's you know the theory has worked out in practice, but, but I have had to be humble because you know there's a lot to learn um, on the other side, which is not always obvious when you're running a business. Um, and there's a you know there's a, there's a way to get things done, which is not um, you know the way that you know a restaurant business is run or a pub business. It, it, it is it's a more it's a, it's a, it's a much more longer term and um, view and it does involve a lot of other third parties which is not always obvious to you when you're running a business because we have these lps and we've got a lot of um corporate compliance which has to be um dealt with so to me it's been it's been terrific it's just been another you know another joy of of learning really so so when did your time at yo come to an end then it finally came i i, I set myself a target to, to to kind of finish with yo on um by my 20th anniversary so i joined in july the 4th 1999 
well, it seemed like you know, July you know, 2019 seemed like a good good point. It also coincided with the um, the board's decision to buy a business called uh, Snowfox. Um, so Yosushi is made up of three businesses, well, four businesses if, if I'm really counting. But Yosushi UK, um, which also has a business called Tyco, which produces supermarket sushi. So you got you know two businesses in the UK, and um, and I bought a business in Canada called Bento um, just before I stepped down as CEO. Um, and I stayed on with Richard um, to kind of support the handover for 18 months and to the point Snowfox was bought. And at that stage, the business had changed to an American. Most of its revenue comes from America uh, today. And it just didn't seem appropriate. And, I, and the board was getting more and more complex with these different um, companies being represented by significant shareholders. Um, and I was had so much, so many other things going in my life. And I, just, I felt it was the right time to step down. And really, you know, there's a point in which, you are um you, you can't you know you really need to let other people run the business and i you know was glad and and happy to part on on the, the, those terms and so i'm still a, sh- a small shareholder but uh, it's it's a, a part of my life that's now um you know i'm now not not attached to um on a day-to-day basis and 20 years to the month that, that that's some nice closure there and, and so did they buy you a carriage clock or anything to to mark your kind of 20 year anniversary and departure no, well, no, no. When I said no, when I stepped down as CEO, we had a bit of a shindig. I, I, they bought me the most fantastic gift, which is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so pleased. They bought me. I mean, apart from some some odd stuff, which they bought me a beehive, but a really nice beehive with a lovely little plaque saying from your worker bees at Yo. At Yo. Um, so, and I, and it's now, it's now you know full of full of bees and producing loads of honey. Um, and I look at that and just have a chuckle when I go down and see my my bees. Um, you know, because we had two, we had two or three thousand people working, yo, and lots of friends, and that was my extended family, you know, over twenty years. So it, to me, that that all the gifts I was given, that was the one that could have, um, you know, really sort of touched my heart, really. So we'll come on to some of the other businesses you're involved with shortly, but I wanted to ask about your uh, your PLC experience. So you mentioned you're you're now a non-exec director at large UK pub group Fuller's, and you're previously at Marston's. And I'd be interested to get your take on uh, the main differences between being on the board of a publicly listed company uh, and being on the board of a privately owned or, or private equity-backed business. The similarities and the differences with PLC, well, that's been nine years with Marston's, and I'm very grateful to Ralph Finley and Andrew Andrea for being you know, patient with me because I had to learn how to, um, you know, uh, add value, I guess, as a net. And you are basically very, very much pulled to corporate compliance around. And I, I, I've always volunteered to be on all the audits. So I wanted to learn about everything from the audit committee through to Remco to Nomco. Um, and it's, it's so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of corporate compliance. You have to tick a lot of boxes and you've got to get the annual report right. Um, but for me, uh, I, I was... I, th- I think the way the boards are run, um, in terms of the mini- everything from the, the structure and the the timings of boards um, and the the resonance, and then the the minute taking, particularly the importance of a really good company secretary, um, is not lost upon me. Um, so lots of really good sort of structural pieces there, um, and then there's a you're talking about much much you know really big businesses, and I because I I grown up in those big businesses, so it wasn't too too difficult for me to decipher but how does a ceo influence you know 2000 pubs you know how does he basically get his um his, his his retail directors and his brewing director um to actually make a difference to the product and i just all i did was i i was slightly um back to my corporate maverick i was just saying this is all terribly interesting but what about the the um the happy teams and the happy guests and everyone looked to me rather so blindly and i said no you're, at the end of the day, this is not going to work unless you are doing something better than your competitors um, and imagining where the future is going to be. So I, I was probably a, a kind of a force um, to make people rethink um, what the offer was. Didn't matter if it was the, the beer or whether it's actually the, um, the way the pubs were outwardly facing. Um, and then some of the structures which we could bring back the other way. With I think that private equity is, is very good on on property. Um, and more and very good on cash flow. So I think there's things there in terms of analyzing um, acquisitions, which private equity skills you know, brought me probably to the front of the table rather than the back into the boards. Um, but but, I, but I, you know, I, I, I've got to say, I think PLCs are, are, are brilliant. Um, uh, they're, they're brilliant for people to learn from. Um, and, and I think that um, they are, and you know, anybody's in the top in the top two hundred and fifty, 
or top 350, those CEOs are, are, are brilliant to what they do. They're, they're running very complex businesses with lots of corporate governance around them. And if they can actually make a, a difference to the businesses which they run, which the businesses I've been involved with can, um, they are you know, a, a very inspirational place to be around. And the chairman's role is, is super important on PLCs. Um, so they're, they're, they're things I've learned. And, and you know, I, I'm also on the board, of, on the supervisory board of Nero, which is is just a very, very big um, privately owned business, which um, Jerry Ford, chairman and CEO, um, but, you know, he is an intellectual powerhouse and it can cover both bases. And so different, but to the, the PLC governance piece is the bit I, I, I learned most from. You've reeled off a, a number of current commitments that you have that I imagine you know all of which you know have have significant draws in your time. It sounds like you've got a lot in your plate, Robin. And how do you go about managing your, your day, your week, your month? You know, do you have a, a rigid kind of process you go through when you wake up each morning, or or any rituals, or does it all kind of come quite naturally? <laughs> no, anybody knows me knows I'm not, I'm not I'm not a very good morning person. So uh, <laughs> me, me, and, me and rituals. Um, no, I I I, I, try, I try I I try and deal with things um, re- real time if I can. So I don't I don't like to keep people ha- hanging around. So that's something. Um, with the the investments which I'm uh, I, I chair, we have a I try and leave the I leave the CEOs alone on Mondays. We basically have a decent meeting on the Tuesday where we have a meeting in minds. We have a very good structured board. We make decisions and we execute on the board um, output, which means that they haven't got to. I, I'm, they know that I'm not going to dream up lots of new ideas between them. Uh, the board, the boards, um, which is helpful to them. We agree a value creation plan. Um, I, I don't have all the day-to-day distractions that CEO has. It really is a much easier existence in many respects because I don't have to manage a team of people. Um, I just have to, you know, coach and uh, monitor. Um, I think, uh, and then you know, I, I, what I do do is I do map out my whole year with um, board dates, and I'm pretty uh, ferocious about making sure there's a gap between them uh, where I can influence them. Um, if I'm traveling, I'll try and if I go to America, I'll go for a week. I won't go for a day or two, which I've, I've seen that nonsense happen a few times because I, I just don't think you get any value out of that. And I, and I try and um, you make sure that um, the time on the ground is extremely um, well spent. Uh, and, and, and I'm actually doing things real time. You know, if I'm in America, I'm doing stuff in America. I'm not going to take a load of calls from the UK. So that's something I learned from years ago on Yosushi's time. Um and then I, you know, I, and, and I, I, you know, I, I, I try, I try to make make some time to do make some unusual calls. I mean, I've made a couple of calls to people today I haven't spoken to for ten years, I think, um, who I just think that they're brilliant at what they do. Um, and I think unless you are looking for inspiration, um, there's a real danger of 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 the day turning into drudgeries, particularly in COVID. Um, so I, I'm I'm a really I'm, I'm always inspired by you know, interesting stories and, and people doing interesting things. So I, I do try and make some excuses to do some interesting introductions. You mentioned the US. Do, have you been spending much time in the US over, over the COVID period over the last 12 months or so? No, no. I mean, I mean well, not, not, not this year. We, I'm on a call every week with uh, Rosa Mexicano. Um, I, we have a, a, a board. Um, they don't have boards quite as often as we do in the UK. I, I'm pretty pretty religious we have at least 10 10 boards a year we try and skip august and december but america tends to love their quarterly long boards which i think is a law of diminishing returns after three hours um if you haven't made a decision by then you anyway i'd rather have more often and shorter boards but anyway the americans like long one day boards um so but but prior to covid i was i was out in the states probably at least once a quarter um and then I wasn't aboard in the Middle East, so I was out there, you know, uh, once, probably twice, twice a year as well. So, they, but I am, you know, I do do a bit of travelling in Europe because we are looking for some European investments. Um, so, no, this, this year, this year has been, you know, unlike any year, like for everybody else, you know, for the last forty years, I, I, I've just tried to actually keep keep it lively, but um, realizing I've got to do it looking out my window most of the time. With the the investments in the US, and I guess you know, with with Trispan in particular, I think Trispan. Uh, it's it's quite a strong differentiator for for you guys is that it's um, you know it, it does have that true um, transatlantic and actual actually as you say global presence you know you're looking for um, opportunities in Europe and yeah you have investing businesses in the Middle East um, which which is quite unusual for a mid market private equity investor um, and um, and so it'd be interesting to get your take on on what 
um, deal doing is like um, in the States versus versus the UK? Do you have to approach your courting process or, or the actual um, transaction in a, in a slightly different way in the US? I mean, currently we've got four, there's four significant investments in the US. We've got uh, Yardbird, which is like the Ivy meets American Southern food. I mean, these are big units. And um, we just opened Washington, D.C. And we opened Dallas a few months ago, uh, both which are doing you know outstanding numbers. These are $10 million type turnover units. They're unusual. Um, um, we've got uh, Rosemex I've spoken about. And then we've got, uh, Yarb- we've got the Mamon and Naya businesses. In terms of um, deal doing deals in America, again, everything comes back to my investment committee. So I do see it. And we have a pipeline meeting every two weeks. So I'm seeing stuff coming through, coming across the horizon. There are lots more deals in America. I mean, they have, um, they, there are more, more advisors. There is a more, um, uh, you know, by nature, the market being five times the UK, um, there are a lot of uh, privately owned businesses that built very successfully to perhaps a 10 site size and they're regional and they're not known about, you know, apart from in Texas or in Louisiana or wherever. Um, so there are lots of those coming across our desks. Um, I suppose the uh, and the advisors are um, quite bullish at the moment about valuations in America. Um, and banking is open for business, um, which I think the UK, we could arguably could say is less open. Um and, and in America, they have been blessed by extraordinary loans that have been given to businesses, which in some cases has meant that businesses that should have been seeking capital are, don't need to because the government have given these called PPE loans, um, which are probably forgivable, most of them. So they never get repaid. Um, so there's been, there are a lot of businesses that had a stay of execution in America. So there's a kind of a straight, slight dichotomy. There are more assets. Um, and some have just been taken off the market over the last month or so um, in America. Um, but my American colleagues are are, um, are very well plugged into the network um, and are looking at virtually everything. And I, and whenever, particularly when I'm out there, we go and see everything together um, to get my view as well. Kind of touching on the the regional differences, obviously, as you say, the US is a huge market. The Texas consumer might be slightly different from a from a New York consumer, for instance, in the way that they they see kind of eating and drinking out. What are the kind of you know the main things that kind of stick out when you're comparing you know the US and and the UK? Um, is it just the variety in the US and that you need to be you know super local, or you know are, are there big you know, broad brush um, uh, you know, differences that you can point to? Well, I, I went to, I went to university in America, so I, I, for a couple of years. So I, I, I kind of feel I do know America a little bit, and um, it, it is it is a series of at least five or six countries. So you cannot you cannot you cannot you know it's like Europe. You cannot basically believe what's going to work in one part of the state is going to work in another. It has to be relevant to that that market. And some markets are also um, you know they're more advanced than others. Um, Vegas is on, and, and Miami are extraordinary because they're full of people at weekends who don't live there, um, who just fly in to pass party like crazy and they disappear on a Sunday night. So you, you know, that is a particular kind of um, uh, market. Um, the big cities do behave slightly similarly. You know, we know San Francisco, you know, Boston, Chicago, New York, um, are, are, do have probably more commonality in terms of um, customer behavior. Um, and they will recognize brands across those big markets. Um, but there's a, there is a difference between the North and South for sure. Um, and then there's a size of units. You know, the, they're very good at doing grand, you know, big, big restaurants. Um, but it's, it's. I, I think where we we think there's probably a more play is probably on the fast casual, smaller, um, two and a half, three thousand square foot type units. We, we, I think the American teams have come on a bit of a journey, uh, which I you know, was pretty clear about when I started with them. I said, you know, I, I did, I did have, I did have ten restaurants in America with Yo. Um, it, I'm not saying small is beautiful, but there is a, there are some there are some economics around size and rent and payroll um, and demand, which I think you, you probably need to be you know mindful of that. And you don't want to get caught in the middle. That's the problem. If, if you've got a lazy five thousand square foot box, you've got a real problem in your hands. 
And I guess, you know, the landscape is in the US is kind of littered with UK brands across hospitality and retail, both big unit and, and small unit that have opened locations in the States, but ultimately have had to withdraw. And, you know, on the fast casual side, you know, um, Leon, um, who opened up four, four sites in the States, had to uh, have announced recently that they're closing those. So um, so why do you think businesses and brands from the UK find it so difficult to successfully operate in the US? Is it, is it that understanding of the regional different differences or um, is is it down to kind of more fundamental kind of way of doing business issues? I think you need to have deep pockets uh, and, and uh, a lot of patience. I mean, it, it, I mean, Pret a Manger is probably a better example. You know, a hundred sites and couldn't make any money in New York, and it, it, it just. But it, it, you have to be very, um, you know, you have to be very mindful of the real estate. You know, you, you can two things that unf- un- what two things that people make mistakes on is it's a micro locations because they don't they think they can apply a london metric to new york it doesn't quite work that way people the way they travel to work and when they eat and what they eat um is, is different um and you only an american could probably um walk you around each neighborhood and tell you exactly on which street corner you can expect to get success so you know in fact it's a corner location on a busy visible shop front which, which would suit most prets doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in every street corner in america um, in New York, anyway, um, and then the, the cost of real estate um, in terms of construction um, is is a and, and permits is an absolute nightmare. Um, I know from personal experience you can massively over capex a site because of permitting, um, and that is a problem for a lot of people. Licensing is ex- expensive in certain states, um, and I just think you need to go in with a, a big bag of change and, and slug it out, and you have to make sure that you Americanize your, your offer, silly stuff, like you're going to have to put video screens on your walls because they're going to watch the game whether you like it or not. They're either going to watch it in your, if, if not in your place, they'll go to the bar next door. Americans are, are have a different, there are some, some, you know, some nuances which you just ignore it at your peril. Um, and, and, the, and how you market it as well, you know, don't, don't go in there make, thinking you're, you're a cool brand for the UK. You've got to earn your own spurs. And they are, and they you know they're very sophisticated on 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 um on culinary um so don't make claims you can't back up you know that's the other issue i suppose and pizza and pasta you know are 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 dangerously overcrowded and from a from a kind of uk brand perspective uh, obviously us tends to be high up on the list of kind of international expansion um uh, targets uh, you know, primarily i guess because of the lack of language barriers but why why don't we see more uk brands in your opinion um, making their way across the channel to europe um you know closer geographically probably you know easier to manage in the states and the team um why why aren't we seeing seeing more expansion of you know uk brands into france spain germany we have had loads of QSR brands who've done it. I mean, um, they all they all came to the UK back in the sixties and seventies, and you know KFC and McDonald's, and they they, they all went from from here, this, the the kind of the the aircraft carrier into Europe. So the bridge point, and and you know arguably you know Five Guys has cracked it, um, and and, does, and seem to make a decent stab of it. I think I think you probably need um, local partners, um, particularly again around real estate. Um, I think that. And then the, the, everyone knows that the social chapter means that the cost of labour is, you know, prohibitive compared with the UK. I mean, it, it could probably cost you another ten percentage points. Um, so you need to find that a way to get recover that off your rent roll um, to get at least make a decent profit. Um, I, I still think that there's a slight um, ambivalence to to brands. Uh, the most brand receptive nations are people like Spain, um, you know, France and Italy. It strangely like it like they like qsrs but they don't like fast casual uh, chains so there's still lots of mom and pop operators who um who do very good very good food i i, I think there's opportunity for sure and germany we everyone you know knows on, on paper should be the best market of all um is just deadly mean on what they'll spend spend on going out they um uh it's it's just it's, it's well documented i mean you know fair, fair play to them um but I, there are there are opportunities we are you know, we have spent the last three years, we must have looked at, you know, 20 or 30 businesses quite carefully. Um, and then you have the and then you have the issue of, you know, how do you manage it, um, the assets? Uh, and you need to find kind of good, competent, multi-site operators. Um, and the one business, you know, people, you know, Amrest has it, done a great job um, coming out of, uh, in a, east, <clears throat> you know, out of Poland. They, they, they know what they're doing. Um, there are there are pockets of of success, but it, it is it is tougher. And, and the language 
in a barrier is it's, it's not insurmountable because you find you know good nationals who can hopefully speak English if you can't speak their language but it's not to be underestimated there'll be subtleties in terms of getting deals done employing people uh, and I know from Yo we, we had brilliant businesses in in the airports um, where you can make good money um, you know, we, we're in Norway and in France you know, and it, it, it worked really really well um, so it can it can work and then sticks and sushi um, Andreas and his team have done a great job in in Berlin. I think they're just opening another site now. Um, it, it, there are there are there are some you know, some opportunities, but it, it's not to be underestimated. And again, you need you need to set quite a lot of money aside if you're at a, a, a certain size, and you know not expect a quick return on it. So you just need to be realise this could be long a long burn. Um, and the board and private equity, you know, obviously doesn't doesn't give you awful. Always gives you a long, a long runway in terms of time to, to deliver a result. Um, so that always becomes a consideration. And generally, you know, private equity gets involved, and you know, two years of getting their their feet under the table, and then you know, year three, someone says, "Let's do international," and then by year four, people start to actually do something about it. And then everyone's thinking, "Oh crikey, how how can I prove this is going to work?" You know, without you know multiple points of success, and that's where you probably need to do franchising. I mean, I think you know. Find a good franchise partner, licensing partner, terrific. But you have to also spend time working very closely with them. I mean, I, th- I think it's a, you know, a fascinating topic, and I um, uh, and you do need to you know be well advised if you do franchising licensing. Make sure you're well advised on the, on the legals because it'll it'll come back and bite you otherwise. In terms of your pipeline in in the UK specifically. Um... It'd be really interesting to get your take on valuations at the moment, because with the last 12 months, um, you know, businesses would have been opening, closing their doors. They would have been, um, you know, launching new revenue streams, you know, at home boxes, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I don't think any business in the hospitality space um, will have had a normal P&L to point to in the last 12 months. So how do you go about from an investor's perspective, kind of valuing businesses in this kind of climate? We're pro, pro, pro forma what we think performance would be like in a normal year. So you go straight back to 19 numbers um, pre-COVID um, and um, take those as your base. Um, add on anything which they've probably opened in the year. Um, probably not not attribute a huge amount of value to home meal kits and that kind of stuff because I mean, no one knows how that's going to actually settle um, when the restaurants reopen. Um, but you hope that that's, it'll be a wash between that and the um, in-dining. I we look very carefully at the um the the dining what's happened with the dining dine out because you know if if dining doesn't doesn't recover have they got a decent dine dine out offer you know, are they are they doing lots of delivery so that 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 would help them with the multiple but in terms of then how you do a deal you then have to basically say look you know um you might want your you know eight times pro forma number or, or whatever it's going to be it's in terms of evaluation number but I'm frankly you haven't you, you can't prove to me that that really is a a, a bit of basis on which we can invest that 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 um EBITDA number is historic um it is uh, ancient um you know if a trajectory is it is is going another direction then we've got a real problem here so i think most deals and we're no we're not unique to us i think there's some of our um payment will for the full full valuation will probably would be in some deferred um value um, so shareholders you know, can't take all the money off the table uh, until probably there's been a, a proper, uh, a decent period of trading under you know, quasi-normal conditions. And that probably means if you do a deal today, you can really start the clock um, you know, earliest will probably be January next year. Uh, and you probably then have to basically do an earn out probably on the, of the last bit of the increment um, on 12 months trading from beginning of next year or even, you know, 24 months from now, but a 12 months uh, LTM. But I, I can't, I can't, I don't think it's fair, frankly, to ask investors to invest on, on, uh, and, and put, and basically put out their shareholders' money without some proof of earnings. Um, but equally, there, there should be huge encouragement for the upside. So it's a balancing act, as we all know. Um, and we, we, and we, 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 and we, we, know, we, we, we have a, you know, I think we've got a good reputation of, of completing deals on the deal we, uh, we strike. When we start, so we don't we don't retrade deals. We just say, look, this is assuming everything's you know worked out. Then this is how it be, and that's exactly what's happened with Rosa Tie. Um, uh, you know, and we've and so we we expect to, be, to continue to do that. 
Um, but that's that's way. But, but the value is whether it's whether it's you know six times, eight times, ten times. It, it it just depends on the quality of the asset and the scalability and all the kind of intangibles around the quality of that that um, the defensibility of that that concept and the quality of the management team. And I'm afraid that that sort of is a bit. Of, that's where teams need to get well advised uh, well well ahead of time to make sure they're they're fit for the the um the debate around that 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 multiple number um because people aren't going to people are not people can't they can't really afford to overpay um uh, because then ultimately you know it is this they they get they get it in the neck if they don't get it right so no, of course. And, and, and that goes to an investor's kind of, you know, um, the exit landscape as well. And what does the exit look like? Who is the exit to? What form of exit is that? Is that a partial exit? Is that an IPO? So um, what's, what's your current take at the moment on the, on the exit landscape? We, we've, you know, particularly in, in hospitality, you know, I think, you know, the, the trade, the, the typical trade buyers that historically would have been, you know, snapping up um, young growing brands have, you know, um, we, we haven't seen any activity, <laughs> you know, very little activity from trade buyers over the last kind of couple of years so you know do you do you think we'll we'll see a re-emergence of of trade buyers um uh you know potentially looking for um you know new brands to to implant into um existing sites and existing states or will ipo become an increasing feature of the exit landscape over, over the next few years we've, we've seen a handful over the last kind of you know few months in in the hospitality space um you know nightcap various e-trees and onto the aim market um you know, what, what's your take on on what exit might look like for some of your portfolio businesses in the future? Well, I, I'm much more optimistic than, than most. I, I also think people have very short memories. Um, you know, I'm nearly, <laughs> I must be, you know, coming up for 30, 35, 40 years in this business. I, I've seen people into you know, the, the the highs and lows and people, um, you know, people's confidence comes back very quickly. Just look at the share prices in Pubco's the last week. You know, it, it is absolutely clear to me that um, we've been, um, slaughtered as a, as a sector because of not being able to trade, but the the bounce back will will be strong. I mean, I'm, and I think it'll be sustainable as well because as long as we don't have mass unemployment, um, there is a, a crying need for people to go out and be entertained um, and, and enjoy hospitality because it's it, it is a fundamental um, reason for being. And I think we've all basically lived in a cave for a year, and it's driving me nuts. Um, so that's and I, I have to believe I'm not abnormal. Um, so. And, I, and so, in terms of how, what's looked like for the exit, then you look at the Propel, you know, sort of did their rankings list um, uh, came out last week, um, and I pour all over that like some kind of nerd because I guess I, I mean I look at all the names and I, these are my mates and they've all basically been on different journeys, um, growing up their businesses. There will be a there will be a consolidator of some kind in a few years' time. I mean, there'll be another big table or restaurant group um, or Azuri. There will be one of those. Uh, equivalents around at some some point in t- in three to five years time. There's no doubt about it, because um, as long as the business the the sector is backable, um, there'll be an insatiable appetite to to grow the bigger platforms. And personally, I I'm, I think there is a platform for um, you know possibly an, an Asian you know uh, consolidator you know that's or a premium casual consolidator. There there is there is a space for another player in that that's that that area. So I think that that'll come. Um, I think the, the the public market is. I think all all, all of us are getting more sophisticated about investments, and I think that the where people were daunted by IPOs, whilst there's been some some problematic IPOs, I I think that people will be you know confident in doing that as long as they can get a hundred million valuation to make it pay all the crazy fees that go with it. Um, there are, there are enough old geezers like me who understand about the corporate governance that should help them not trip over themselves because you need to make sure you run it. Um, uh, confidently, um, and I think that you know, I, I just think there'll be with the decline of retail. I think hospitality will continue to to grow. I think that I think if you've got a point of difference, there will be people who want to back it, as long as you can grow it sustainably. So I'm I'm actually much more confident about it. And I think the you know, private equity it, it exists to invest, um, and there there will this sector, whilst it's been out of favour, which is terrific for you know us and a few other. Um, investors um there will be a return from other players to this sector it just is cyclical um so we're 
we're at the down point now and it will be very different, look terribly different in three years' time, three to five years' time. We've, we've done a couple of deals in the States with, with landlords where we've we basically done joint ventures with them. And I, so I think there will be this blurring of a strategic investment in the sector. Um, the landlords are the obvious one, although they, you know, they, they're villains at the moment with the, the rent overhang. Um, they could become significant investors in the restaurant space. And, and, and there are you know, other strategic buyers who are, are go back through the supply chain on the food. Um, may also be interested in, in expanding into this area. You just, I think it's important that we don't just get stuck in narrow thinking uh, about who the, the buyers or the investors of these businesses are, because they could be strategically, you know, not obvious to you. But you just have to think about what they, what could they profit? How could they profit from this relationship? Um, so whoever whoever's on your board, you know, they, they need to be just thinking on these these areas um, and keep their their eyes open. I mean. You know, um, you know, Amazon you know, could be interested. It's it's all sorts of areas we could you need to be considering. Absolutely. So, so Robin, we're going to um, pivot away from COVID to coin a phrase, um, and uh, we've reached that time that everyone's been waiting for. Well, I, I certainly have. It's our quick fire round. So, we're going to throw a few short, sharp questions at you, uh, and you're going to give me some short, sharp answers back. Okay, first one: tuna sashimi or salmon sashimi. <laughs> Good quality tuna, Sashimi. Full English breakfast or pancakes and maple syrup? Oh, full English breakfast. What's been your best spontaneous lockdown purchase? My one was, I have a habit of breaking mountain bikes. So I bought a really cheap bike because I was uh, I was getting fed up with breaking them. And I bought a, a Bazango, which is a really garish orange uh, looking bike from Halfords. But I've, I have actually smashed it up. So I'm now going to buy an, an, an electric <laughs> electric bike and smash that up probably. I have to mention my, my wife said she was getting she I've married to this pretty bohemian lovely woman. She said I'm going to I'm going to treat myself, and and then this, these diggers turned up and they basically built a natural swimming pool in front of our house um, through through lockdown. So I'm looking at it now and um, she bullies me into going into it even at this time of the year. But it is just <laughs> it is spectacular. So that's been the craziest purchase <laughs> during lockdown. That is pretty bad. <laughs> Diggers turn up on your front lawn. Cool. Eat in or eat out? Uh, eat in any day of the week. I, I like I like company. Rishi Sunak or Matt Hancock? Oh, I couldn't couldn't be Matt Hancock. No, Rishi Sunak. <laughs> What's the most used app on your phone right now? Cool. So it used to be the the, um, the, the railway one, um, and apart from the obvious ones like Amazon and uh, Netflix, which has got an absolute pounding. Um, I have I have started using Strava um, to you know track journeys to to track your crashing of your bikes. Yeah, exactly. Where was that last one? A chain I broke. Or... <laughs> exactly. Cool. Uh, and and finally, uh, Rosa's tie or Rosa Mexicano? Oh, it's got to be Rosa tie. That's 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 the one I'm most associated <laughs> with. Yeah. Okay. Uh, our, our US audience is is slowly growing, Robin. So uh, <laughs> it won't I, be long until the border. The food, the food is great. I love Rosemary. It makes food, and uh, they, these are these are absolutely uh, stunning restaurants. You know, in Lincoln Center, Union Square in New York. You know, these are big, you know, um, big restaurants. I thought that last question was a little unfair, but you answered it very quickly, so you clearly clearly had your favourite. Um, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, I kind of thought it was a bit like me asking you to name your favourite child. Um, but uh, but we, we we won't go there either. But um, uh, I, I do want to touch on family though. You've you've you you have three children. You're a father of three children. How old are they? Put you on the spot now. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's awful. No, my, my, my oldest son is it's just about to go twenty one. So so twenty one uh, middle son, number two son, twenty, and my daughter is seventeen. Okay, so are they are they full? You're twenty one year old. Is that a Gen Z or is that is he a millennial? I think that's still Gen Z. Is he? He's, he's Gen Z. Um, I mean, the three of them all think think much the same way. They are, they all have a very uh, strong code. I think the three of them. Mm. So, so what are they teaching you in terms of their appetite for going out, their appetite for um, for pubs, for bars, for restaurants? Um, you know, what's what's taking their attention at the moment? Well, they all. I mean, two of them are at university, so they do a shed load of um, delivery because I know because I can see it on my accounts coming through. Um, so they, they are, you know, deliveries, you know, uh, and Uber Eats, my best friends, really. Um, they, but they all cook, which is great. Um, they, they, they are, I mean, they're not super woke, but they, they do care very much about, you know, where the food comes from, how people have been treated in, in the restaurants. Um, you know, the whole 
debacle about Deliveroo and the um, and the drivers has been played out on the on the dinner table with us talking about it. They and they and they've all worked in restaurants, so they kind of know what what matters um, in terms of hospitality, which is you know you don't get hospitality necessarily from delivery. Um, so they've taught me, I suppose, that there is a demand for that. And pubs, yeah, they they kind of like they don't drink the volume that we used to drink. I mean, um, I, I, they genuinely um, are, are are not as valuable customer, I guess, as, as perhaps I was, you know, at their age. Um, but they do, they do like, they probably will, you know, they'll be more, they're more premium in what they buy, um, more sophisticated in their choices of alcohol. I mean, they all of them know exactly what they want to drink by brand, which is, uh, you know, remarkable thinking, you know, they're still quite young. You touched on that kind of a theme of ethical consumerism, which is, is certainly a lot more prevalent in uh, in the Gen Z and younger millennials um, than, than maybe uh, people of, of my age or your age, Robin. Um, and it's a growing trend and you know, consumers are increasingly savvy um, and will do their research and dig into understanding the backgrounds of the businesses that they interact with, um, particularly on the consumer product side, you know, um, understanding of supply chains, environmental impact. Um, so how, how important is it um, for you as a, as a, with your investor hat on um uh the, the the businesses that you're involved in and invest in you know are purpose driven and, and do um you know, do do the right thing um is this something you particularly look out for or is it a bit of a kind of tick box exercise as you go through the due diligence um no it's not it's not a tick box exercise i, I promise you we, we um esg is is you know the, the buzzword in america um everyone uses and you know corporate responsibility is what we talk about in the uk um, it, it is now writ large into our investment committee in terms of decision making. Uh, personally, it chimes with my values anyway, so I don't have a problem with it. And in fact, it sort of um, it helps put a, uh, some good runway against what we should be um, investing in. And I think it's going it's to be really important to the, the, the generation of consumers coming up behind. So um, I, I'm, you know, we are pretty. Uh, I've always been very diligent around the, the the human capital of a business and the supply chain because that's kind of what I've, I've learned um, over the years anyway. Um, and I think that you, you you really should be doing doing good for the world. So I don't think we would invest in something that was um, shortchanging the, the customer or our team members. Um, it's a it's a tricky balance because obviously there's commercial imperative at the same time. But I, I actually think it's 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 going to be the way the world's going to be. Um, demanding answers to whether whether you know you can comply overnight with everything that's being asked for is a, is a different matter but i think there's a level of consciousness uh which is now you know writ large now into the world in which we're going to be living in so you know it, it, it is it's really important it is important for tri-span and i can i that all the partners would agree with me now um you know we've all committed to it and we have made some difficult decisions based on that as well uh, which i think is the right thing to do and I guess stepping back and kind of you know, starting to wrap up, is there anything at the moment other, other than COVID and what and what the government might announce next that that kind of keeps you awake at night? Um, you know, what, what kind of worries you at the moment? I mean, I, I mean, not, not, I mean, I'm not not nothing really worries me about our businesses. Rosa Tide and you know, and Thunderbird are, are brilliantly run. I mean, Gavin Adair and um, Paul Gilchrist are, are terrific CEOs, and they've got good teams around them. They know what they're doing. Um, and they're at the top of the game at the moment. So I'm you know, really pleased with the way that they're performing. So that, I think getting deals done is, you know, a deal's never done, it's done. So, you know, I've alluded to some things going on. So that does something keep me up a bit at night. But also I'm, I know that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I mean, there is a kind of a resonance about these things. And, you know, I think, I think you know, I can feel pretty confident it will. And for me, I know my, my biggest issue, like any parent, is, you know, I do worry for my children about how they're going to be gainfully employed and, you know, are they going to thrive through having had a year of absolutely mullered education for all of them um, and, you know, and socially being deprived of what they should be doing? And, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how, how great my life was at their age. I, I, I know that they've, they've missed out on a chunk of um, informative experiences. Let's put it that way. Um, so I, I just I just want them to get that back. But I mean, I think it's all solvable because we'll we'll get back to life again, hopefully.
And finally, Robin, we've focused um, our interview today on your story, your career, your sector insights. But there's one other thing that you're famous for, and that's your hair. Uh, some say it's the best <laughs> head of hair in, in the hospitality business. So um, the, the burning question, I'm sure, is on everyone's lips is how have you managed to keep your hair in top shape during lockdown whilst the barbers have been shut? <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty much ignoring it. No, Fiona's, <laughs> Fiona's very good with um. She she does both for dogs, so Airedale and our, our terrier's hair, and then Mike comes third generally. But but no, she just gets me in the garden and cuts my hair. And it has been commented on rather favourably on the, on the Fuller's board meeting. I explained my wife can can sort them, can fit them in one day. Um, I'm, she, 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 I'm not shy of getting her to cut my hair. <laughs> Don't blame me. Cool. And um, finally, there's been a lot of doom and gloom in the last 12 months. So, so Robin, I know you're, you're, you're one of the most optimistic people I know. So tell us, what should we all be looking forward to in the next 12 months? Travel. It is the most soul-enriching thing. Um, and, and I, you I, I, know, we got, I got a, a place in Wales, which I'll get, I, I should be able to go to on, on Monday. I can't wait because finally Drakeford will let us in. But, you know, to... To to not you know, to be able to go skiing and to be able to go travel to France and go for a weekend in Amsterdam, all this is first world problems. I know that, but actually they're enriching for the soul. And and to be able to, um, you know, go to see the coast and, and go surfing and be out with my kids walking and my, my wife, my family. I mean that that's what I look forward to. And um, it's what makes life and and just sitting around having brilliant meals with brilliant company, um, being served. You know, you know not having to just always eat in the home um, is a joy, which I cannot wait to enjoy again. Robin, that's a lovely note to close on. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Adam. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to any of our channels, drop us a line or follow Tamwheel Capital on LinkedIn, where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure, hospitality, wellness, consumer and challenger. Thanks for listening.